Please note, rewards offered are subject to change or expire. To the author's knowledge, reward amounts are current and valid as of this episode's air date and may be subject to terms and conditions. Please confirm all reward details with the relevant case authority listed in the show notes. Welcome back to Reward Offered. Some quick housekeeping up first. If you would like further information on Lorraine and Wendy's case that we covered in our first four episodes and to follow our continuing look into their murders and discussion about the case, please like and follow the Facebook page we've created. Just search Justice for Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans dash Murphy's Creek Murders on Facebook. I will put a link to it on the Reward Offered socials too. There's a few deep dive posts on the page to catch up on. One looks at every individual piece of evidence, and that's listed in air quotes, that one will come across if they break down the coroner's findings piece by piece. I've also put out a more in-depth summary of my critiques of the 60 Minutes Australia segment on the case. I will say it again, 60 Minutes Australia has done some incredible investigative journalism, but as far as this case goes, their handling falls far short of the standard I would expect and the standard they project. In my opinion, their segment accomplished only to spread misinformation and present a completely inaccurate account of the known facts of the case, as well as further spreading the sensationalism that has contributed to the inaccurate public perceptions of the case for almost half a century. That's frightening. When you consider approximately 1.2 million people saw that segment on Lorraine and Wendy's case the night it aired in 2014, plus however many have streamed it since. How can the public know if they know anything of relevance, if they're working with incorrect information? This coming October 6 will mark 48 years since Lorraine and Wendy were murdered. For listeners who are willing, I thought it might be nice to see some candles lit on social media in the girl's memory. I've done this over the last few years for the anniversary of Maura Murray's disappearance, and I think it's a great way to not only remind ourselves and others of these cases, but to serve as a reminder that it's our responsibility as their community to continue to seek the truth on their behalf. If you do choose to light a candle this October 6, please use the hashtag Justice for Lorraine and Wendy, and remember not to use the and symbol, because that'll break the hashtag. Our goal is to not let the girl's case reach 50 years without the truth being known. And I say this with 100% confidence, that that goal is attainable. So please, if you know anything about the circumstances around what happened to Lorraine and Wendy, please reach out at rewardofferedpod at gmail.com. Your information and your identity will be kept strictly confidential. That's it for the housekeeping, guys. Now back to our current case. This is part two of our dive into the Pierce family murders. A reminder that the reward offered for information in this case is $1 million. And as I already forewarned, There are some unexpected tangents and side stories ahead. So with that, let's get back to the case. If any of the details of this case cause you distress, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or a relevant crisis support service in your local area. We'll begin today by looking at the known details of possible sightings of Stuart Pearce over the years. During their most recent press conference I could find relating to the case, which was in September 2014, 
South Australia Police said they have no idea whether Stuart Pearce is alive or dead. They also indicated that they had been unable to confirm if any of the sightings were indeed Pearce. But reports of the time don't indicate that they were so doubtful, or at least not at that time. Let's look at the sightings in chronological order. Sunday the 6th of January 1991. Just after 11am on the day of the fire, a shop assistant in Port Augusta claimed a man resembling Pierce purchased a beverage at his store. He reported the man was dressed in the same outfit Pierce was known to be wearing when he left his BP shift. His work uniform. Made up of beige trousers and shirt with a BP logo on the breast pocket. What's interesting about this as one of the first initial sightings is that, according to Google Maps, the journey from Parafil Gardens, where the Pierce family home was, to Port Augusta, where this sighting occurs, takes a smidge over three hours. We know the fire has to be set prior to 7am, because that's when the first noises believed linked to the fire are heard. The sighting is around 11am. A three-hour trip leaves us with roughly just over an hour to spare. But we know Pierce has to drop the Datsun off at the Kilkenny shopping complex first. Port Augusta is north-northwest of Parafield Gardens. But the Kilkenny location is 15 minutes southwest of Parafield Gardens, and due to the city's location on the coastline, the return trip requires you to more or less retrace the same route. You can't save time by bypassing the Parafield Gardens area on your way back through to Port Augusta. That 15-minute trip each way accounts for another half an hour of that time window, so there's now only around 30 minutes unaccounted for. At the Kilkenny complex, Pierce either had another car waiting to switch into, he acquired another one possibly by stealing it, or he had an accomplice pick him up. Reports say there were six other sightings across the northern suburbs of Adelaide that day, so at least some of those sightings could have been also in that 30-minute time window. While we can't be sure the man in the BP uniform at Port Augusta was Pierce, the timeline doesn't rule it out as having been him. Monday the 7th of January. Two people told police they saw a man who looked like Pierce walking west on the outskirts of Seduna, South Australia. The man was described as being dressed in dark shirt and shorts and carrying a small travel bag. Police at the time requested to speak with the driver of a semi-truck who allegedly picked up a hitchhiker near Seduna and supposedly gave the man a lift to Southern Cross in Western Australia. There is no date listed for this, just that it occurred, quote, early that week. On what is believed to be Tuesday the 8th, an individual matching Pierce's description was sighted at a remote service station in Madura, Western Australia. Police said he may have been travelling as a passenger in a cream utility, possibly a Subaru, with a driver described as being in his early 20s with a light complexion and light collar-length hair. There was then an undated reported sighting near Kalgoorlie, also in Western Australia. Five months after the murders, on Friday the 14th of June 1991, a man resembling Pierce was spotted by a woman back in South Australia, this time in a park in Mount Gambier at approximately 2.30pm. Pierce was seen to be having lunch with a man and a woman. Another sighting later that day only adds credence to the park sighting, as well as to the idea that Pierce, at least at that time, was still alive and well. Approximately two hours later, at 4.30pm, Pierce was spotted in the main street of Mount Gambier by his own sister-in-law, who reportedly made eye contact with him before he sped off in a car. In an article dated four days later, on the 18th of June 1991, Detective Chief Inspector Dennis Edmonds, who was coordinating the investigation, 
was quoted as having said the sighting by the sister-in-law was a, quote, very positive identification from close range, end quote. There was also suggestion in the article that it was thought Pierce was being assisted by family and or friends, as he had had a neat, clean-shaven appearance when he was seen. There was no description of the car he sped off in, nor what he was wearing. The day following that sighting, on Saturday the 15th of June 1991, the owner of a food store in Hamilton, South Australia, believed they saw Pierce in their shop at around 10.45am. While the surviving son Matthew now claims to have never seen his father since the murders, it would appear this wasn't always his claim. A Canberra Times article dated the 10th of January 1992 says Matthew had reported to police that on the day prior, being Thursday the 9th of January 1992, he had seen his father at the Verbena Drive Reserve near their former Parafield Gardens home at around 11.25am. He reportedly told police that his father was driving a late model light blue or silver blue Ford Telstar or Mazda 323 sedan. While Matthew claimed to have run off when the man got out of the vehicle and approached him, the article also reports that two of the four friends who were with Matthew at the time said that the man had in fact stopped and spoken with Matthew. One of those boys, Scott Camplin, went on to say that Matthew had not revealed to them that the man was his father. This seems like an oddly detailed sighting for Matthew to claim, only to then later retract. The same 1992 article quotes a police spokesman as having said, quote, We are treating it as a positive sighting. End quote. One article in the Advertiser indicates another sighting attributed to a sister-in-law, but in March of 1996 in Mount Gambier, although it's unclear to me if this is an additional sighting by a sister-in-law or if the wires are just crossed somewhere with the information of the 14th of June 1992 sighting. The most recent possible sighting of Pierce seems to have been at the Westfield Knox Shopping Centre in Melbourne in 1996. Police were never able to confirm or rule out the sighting. It would seem that at least until some time in 1996, Pierce was continuing to move back and forth between the southern states. There is no reports of any more recent sightings. The surviving son, Matthew Pierce, told the Advertiser paper in 2002 that he doesn't believe that his father is guilty of the murders. Rather, he believes that someone else was trying to extract information from his mother before they killed her and his siblings. He also said he believes his father to be deceased, killed some time later by the same perpetrator. Sadly, as you might expect, Matthew has indeed had a troubled life after the events of that weekend in 1991. As previously stated, he claims to believe his father is innocent, but perhaps his mind just won't allow him to think otherwise. According to reports, he's racked up a long resume of charges related to drugs, burglary and firearms, amongst others. He also supposedly had and or has ties to a motorcycle gang, which, honestly, when I read that, it didn't really surprise me that a kid who lost his entire family overnight when he was seven might be drawn to that type of dynamic. One of the images often projected by motorcycle groups is one of a tight-knit family. If someone were seeking that, it would seem to be an obvious place they could find it. It's been reported that in 2004, Matthew was charged with criminal trespass and sentenced to jail time after being found in the ceiling of a toy shop. He claimed to have been there for four hours, as he believed the murderers of his family would come after him next. Now, is this event genuinely due to the effects of trauma? Trauma mixed with drug use? or just him trying to use his past to elicit empathy and leniency when he was caught in the commission of a crime. Honestly, who knows? 
He was also reportedly jailed several years ago for a variety of offences, with District Court Judge Paul Slattery saying the courts had run out of patience with Matthew despite his tragic childhood. Either way, it's a sad outcome for the only survivor. He didn't choose the grief, guilt and upheaval he experienced. If his mum and siblings were never killed, who knows, maybe his life would have been exactly the same. But maybe it could have been different. I did read that he has at least one son, so I hope he finds himself moving in a better direction, whatever that means for him. I'm not going to delve any further into Matthew's criminal history, as ultimately it doesn't have any bearing on solving the murders of his mum and siblings, and that's our goal. So what happened here? I believe we can reasonably narrow it down to four main possibilities. I'll list them, and then we can work through them. One, Pierce is guilty and committed suicide at some point after the murders. Two, Pierce is guilty and still on the run somewhere in Australia or overseas. Three, Pierce is innocent, and someone through a bikey, drug, underworld, or other link is guilty of the murders, having also later killed Pierce. Four, another individual killed Meredith and the kids, and later killed Pierce. Realistically, I'm not aware of any precedent of hardened criminals or motorcycle groups going around killing women and their children over drug debts or disputes across Australia. Maybe I'm just naive and I obviously can't rule it out entirely, but I think option three involving a drug or underworld perpetrator just isn't likely. So three is out. Let's consider options one and two simultaneously and then discuss the more likely of the pair. Based on what I know of the case and our discussion on perpetrators who would commit such a crime last episode, here is my speculation and theory as to how that weekend unfolded based on the information we now currently know. Stuart Pearce, as a result of financial pressure and or the real or perceived imminent breakdown of his relationship with his wife, put together a plan to kill her and their children. He would murder them prior to an overnight shift at work and rig gas bottles to explode to help form an alibi. After he awoke on the evening of Saturday, January 5, 1991, and Meredith entered their bedroom, he killed her and left her in such a manner that when discovered, in his mind, it could be plausible that the murder had been committed by someone who had a grievance against Stuart or the family. He then moved on to killing his children, who, perhaps if he was under financial pressure, could be seen as one of his biggest expenses in life. If we assume for a moment no presence of a knife in the crimes, Meredith's death seems unnecessarily violent compared to the children. Obviously, she's likely to fight harder and louder than the children, so it would make sense to me that she would be killed first. But why beat her? It's not necessary in order to achieve the final desired outcome. It's either part of a plan by Stuart to make it either appear that Meredith was being interrogated for information by an assailant with a vendetta, or it could just be that she was the sole focus of his emotions. It's possible that he wanted to be hands-on in her killing, but not with the children. The two older boys being tied to chairs could be to prevent them from fighting back also. I found no indication as to whether the bags over the boys' heads were secured in place, or if Pierce, or another assailant, was required to have held them in place manually. Smothering Carrie was sadly probably the quickest method given her size and inability to fight back. With regard to any scenario where the possibility of a knife being utilised is entertained, there's just too many unknowns to usefully speculate. We don't know the description of, nor the number of injuries to each victim in comparison to one another, nor do we know if injuries were inflicted pre- or post-mortem. 
Police have reportedly said that there is a great deal of evidence to suggest Pierce was responsible for the deaths, which doesn't seem to align with the circumstantial evidence we're working with from what's publicly available, indicating the likely presence of far more physical evidence than we are aware of. In any case, continuing my speculation, Pierce then rigs the seemingly strategically placed gas bottles and leaves for work. As the end of his shift approaches, he realises nothing has occurred to draw the attention of first responders, as police haven't arrived at his workplace to advise him of a problem at home. He either knows he has a store of petrol on hand at home, or prior to finishing his shift, acquires some from the BP and takes it with him. He speeds home, realising on arrival that, sure enough, the house is intact. He douses the family home in petrol and sets it alight before fleeing. From what I could find online, it seems to be the case that South Australia didn't introduce Sunday trading for non-exempt stores until 2003. Even today in metropolitan areas, it seems they're still restricted to the opening hours of 11am to 5pm, and I'm sure someone out there can tell me if that's wrong. But dumping the car at the Kilkenny shopping centre kind of makes sense to me. It's 15 minutes from the house, and stores either don't open till 11am or don't open at all that day. It's 7am on a Sunday, so there isn't a mass of witnesses around to see a perpetrator abandon it there. I'll include photos of the car on our social media. After weighing it all up, it's more probable to me that of options 1 and 2, being suicide or escape, that Stuart Pearce managed to escape after murdering his wife and three of his children. Obviously, it would have been far easier to establish a new identity and backstory for someone wanting to disappear in 1991 versus now, and as already discussed, the notion that he would take his own life, be it immediately after the murders or at any point since, in such a way that would involve his body never being found, is just far less likely in my mind. In our hunt to find the most likely option based on the evidence we have, like option 3, I'm ruling out option 1. Let's take a closer look at option 2. One of the critiques of the idea that Stuart Pearce is guilty of the murders and on the run under a new identity is the idea that doing just that for some 31 years now would be hard. In fact, Detective Brevet Sergeant Bob Sharp stated in 2016 that it would be, quote, very, very difficult, end quote, for any person to live off the grid for 25 years. But, in a bizarre twist, wait for it, not a year later, the younger brother of Stuart, Lindsay Pierce, was arrested for fraud, and it was revealed that he had been, according to him, living in a self-imposed quasi-witness protection program since 1991, claiming he was in fear for his life after he and other family members had received letters threatening to, quote, kill them all, after the murders of Meredith and the children. I've seen no mention by police of any such letters with regard to this case, so I'm unsure if they were verified as having been received, and if so, if the sender was ever identified. Lindsay Pierce, who would now be 54, was sentenced to prison after it was revealed that he had stolen over $84,000 in social security payments in an intricate scam that involved the creation of a fake identity using forged documents. Lindsay had been claiming the New Start allowance while simultaneously claiming a disability support pension, all while working in paid employment under the new identity. The New Start Allowance in Australia is an income support payment that provides financial assistance to people aged 22 years or older but under pension age who are unemployed or treated as unemployed. Lindsay claimed that he had been living in fear for his life and had used the money from the rort to fund his years in hiding, saying that moving constantly between states was expensive, and as someone who has moved from Brisbane to Melbourne for five years before returning home, I can tell you on that front, 
He ain't lying. He claimed to have moved 30 times since 1991 in order to protect himself. He pled guilty to three counts of dishonestly obtaining a financial advantage, covering the time between 2001 to 2014. A judge accepted a correlation between his personal history and the offending, but sentenced Lindsay to prison time, saying Mr Pierce had run a deliberate and systematic fraud over an extended period of time and deemed the offending too serious to consider suspending the sentence. It would be hard to deny that the notion Stuart Pierce may have been on the run and successfully hiding for 31 years becomes far more likely when you discover his younger brother seems to have been doing just that for 26. I initially came across the information about Lindsay Pierce in a video on the YouTube page Criminally Listed and their coverage of the case. After learning of the story, I had to specifically search for relevant articles as they didn't appear initially when reviewing those on Stuart Pierce. Even now, I've only been able to locate a couple of online articles that actually discuss these events. So props to Criminally Listed for their research because I most likely wouldn't have been privy to this element of the case if it wasn't for their 2017 video. Obviously a question here is, was Lindsay Pierce telling the truth? Did he also disappear in 1991? And if so, when? How close to the time of the murders are we talking? Was this guy single, or did he leave behind a wife and children when he went into his self-imposed witness protection? Was he missing to the point that he was listed as a missing person? Or was he just living a second life for the purposes of running the fraud scam? And more importantly, does he know anything about the murders, or does he know more than he's letting on? One of the biggest unanswered questions is motive. If Pierce is our guy, there's really only two options. One, something happened between him and Meredith and he snapped. Terrific show, by the way. Or two, the whole murder plot was premeditated. So which is more likely? Realistically, we can't rule either out. But for some reason, I would think, and this isn't based on any data or anything, it's just my hunch, that if someone did just snap momentarily, I would expect them to be more likely to commit suicide or run immediately, not go to their scheduled work shift and seemingly be able to calmly and rationally concoct an idea to stage a house fire as a plausible alibi. Then again, if it is premeditated, why leave one child alive? Why leave them alone with the guilt and questions? Why let Matthew sleep over at the friend's house? I thought about this for quite a while. If we take Matthew as a credible witness, then, according to him, quote, My mate was going to stay at my house that night, but my dad told me I could stay at his, so I went over there and stayed for the night. He knew I wasn't going to be there. End quote. Matthew also included a very valid query. Quote, Why would he plan to kill us and then let me stay away on the night? End quote. Which is obviously a great question. It could be that Stuart selectively chose to spare Matthew's life. But given the circumstances, I actually think this could be another possible indication of premeditation by Pierce. Say Pierce has this weekend of the 5th and 6th set as the weekend. He then finds out that Matthew has arranged to have a friend sleepover. Now, this scenario indicates a choice by Pierce to ensure no one outside his family is killed. Otherwise, he could have just killed the friend too, but he doesn't. According to Matthew, Pierce himself switches the sleepover location to the friend's house. Why not just tell Matthew he can't go to the sleepover anymore? Maybe because if your plan is to go to work and just act dumb about the night's events, in the aftermath when people start asking questions, you don't want someone querying why you suddenly cancelled your son's sleepover plans at the last minute. On the night, almost your entire family wound up being murdered. 
Maybe I'm giving the guy too much credit, but maybe not, given he seemingly largely managed to conceal exactly where he went after he left work that Sunday morning and has never been taken into custody. Friends describe the Pierces as a normal family. One article quotes an unidentified friend of the family as having said, quote, He loved his kids, especially his little daughter. She was his pride and joy, end quote. Going on to describe Pierce as a doting father. People said the exact same thing about Chris Watts. Sometimes even when we have the why, we're still left with questions. Much like a child asking again and again, but why? So it's no wonder we're left with so many questions when we're without any idea of the why. Just because I've seen no suggestion anywhere of any extramarital affair, we can't rule it out. Regardless, it's obviously the case that no motive will ever explain nor justify anyone brutally murdering a mother and three of her young children. So that's three options we've looked at. But there was another possible option that emerged as I was researching. This is our option four. Stuart's brother Lindsay claimed that the reason he had gone into hiding was because he, supposedly along with other members of their family, had received letters from an individual known to them, threatening their lives in the wake of the murders of Meredith and the kids. This same individual was responsible for the deaths of Meredith's parents, Alan Sidney Maynard, 62, and Sylvia Mural Maynard, 58, in their Mount Gambier home, just six years earlier, on the 5th of July, 1985. The couple were reportedly shot, and it was at the hands of their own son, one of Meredith's four brothers. Now, I am choosing to omit the name of Meredith's brother, given there is no direct evidence that he was involved in the murders of his sister and her children. However, Given his violent past, the fact that he had been released from custody and was reportedly living close to the family at the time, along with the threatening letters allegedly written by him to members of the Pierce family, I feel I can't not mention the strange connection. Oddly, I could find no historical articles online from the time of Alan and Sylvia's murders, not a single article reporting a son killing his parents, or even of the couple being shot. Initially, I wondered if perhaps he was a minor at the time and that might have explained a lack of coverage. But information I found seems to indicate Meredith was the youngest of eight and I know she was 26 at the time of her parents' death, so I think we can rule him out as being a minor. Meredith's brother was found not guilty of the murders on the grounds of mental incompetence and reportedly held at an Adelaide psychiatric hospital for approximately five and a half years before being released just six months prior to the murders of Meredith and the kids. Because there is no records I can find regarding the first set of murders, I have no idea as to the circumstances or what the brother's motive was, if there was one, for killing his parents. Another article I came across by chance referred to a person with the same first and last name as Meredith's brother. The man was a cyclist that had been struck by a vehicle in August of 1980. Was that the same man? I have no way of knowing. But if it was, did he experience an intracranial injury during the collision? We know that children who sustain frontal lobe damage are more likely to become serial killers later in life. But we also know that a traumatic brain injury, or TBI, at any age can cause or worsen a wide range of psychiatric symptoms. It can also result in increased aggression. One study by Brooks et al. looked at 42 individuals with severe TBI. They found threats of violence increased from 15% one year after the head injury was sustained to 54% at the five-year mark. If they are indeed the same man, the one in the article was struck in 1980, and Alan and Sylvia 
was shot in 1985. The same study found 20% of participants had assaulted relatives at least once, and 31% had legal woes. While looking up court records for another case, I tried searching names associated with this one. To be clear, I do not know that this is indeed the same person. But an individual matching Meredith's brother by first, middle and last name was listed in the South Australian court records. As far as I know, that database only went back to 2014, but this individual did have a number of court appearances across 2014 and 2015. Of most interest was two separate appearances for assault charges and two separate issuances of interim intervention orders for domestic abuse. Again, if this man and Meredith's brother are one and the same, that doesn't mean he murdered her and the children. But it would show that in 2014 and 2015, some 29 years after murdering his parents, he still had a propensity for violence towards those closest to him. There has been suggestion by police that the dumping of the car at the Kilkenny shopping complex was an attempt by Pierce to shift blame onto Meredith's brother, seeming to confirm reports that he lived within a 10 to 15 minute drive from the Pierce home at the time. One report stated police had interviewed Meredith's brother soon after the Pierce murders, but that they were satisfied he had no connection to the case. But based on what? There's no mention of any alibi, and if he had one, how airtight is it? Without knowing the details of the alibi, I can't bring myself to rule him off my suspect list. How good of an alibi would any of us have for 12am to 7am over a Saturday night? Most of us would say we were at home with our partner or family and were asleep. I did find a marriage record for a man of the same name as Meredith's brother, who wed a woman by the name of Michelle in 1990. Is that the same man? They would have had to marry between his release from the psychiatric facility and the start of 1991. So is Michelle the alibi? If so, not much of an alibi. But much like Pierce, we also aren't aware as to any motive for why Meredith's brother might want to harm his sister, his niece, or his nephews. If Ellen and Sylvia were indeed shot, it's important to note that this is obviously a vastly different MO to that of the Pierce murders. But on the other hand, how unlucky can one person actually be? If Pierce is guilty, what a shitty hand of cards Meredith drew. What are the chances that your parents are killed by a homicidal brother, and then you and your children are killed by a homicidal husband? Did police ever investigate Stuart's brother's claims about the threatening letters? Was it ever verified that other family members received those letters? Or is there indeed a rock-solid alibi that rules out Meredith's brother and leaves us with only Pierce as our sole suspect in the murders of Meredith and her kids? While I can't rule out Meredith's brother in my mind based on the information we currently have, I still lean towards Pierce as our most likely suspect. And while I didn't initially consider it possible, I now believe that it's not only possible, but perhaps even probable, that Stuart Pierce is still out there, alive and hiding in plain sight under a different name. He may have even gone on to have another family. So keep your eyes peeled, especially if you reside in Victoria, South Australia or Western Australia. But regardless of where you live, Think about the people you know and see in your community. At Woolies, at Bunnings, at restaurants. Does anyone even somewhat resemble the composite photos police released? Accounting for an additional eight years, of course. I also think that if we are indeed operating off of the correct timestamps, that it's a possibility that Pierce may have had an accomplice who assisted him by lighting the fire. If so, I don't think they were involved in the initial plan, but rather roped in after his went awry.
Is that who was seen buying the petrol at the BP near the Pierce home at 6.40am on the Sunday morning, 10 minutes before Pierce finished his shift? Could that also explain the statement by police that there is no evidence Pierce went home after his shift? If he did have help, who was that? Was there a phone at the BP Pierce worked at? And were there any calls made during that last shift? I do wonder if the description of the man and vehicle at the BP buying fuel at 640 matches the details of the driver at the possible Pierce sighting at the service station at Madura two days later. And does that description of either man match anyone related to or known to Pierce? Personally, I think the sighting by Pierce's sister-in-law on the 14th of June 1991 is credible. And if he was alive then, I have no reason to believe he isn't alive now particularly given how unlikely of a scenario him having died since, and in such a way that his body has never been recovered, actually is. But hopefully with the help of one of you, a resolution to this heartbreaking case can be found. South Australian police claim there is no evidence of involvement of anyone outside of the Pierce family home, and believe it is most likely that Pierce is guilty of murdering his wife and three of their children. A warrant was issued on the 22nd of September 1992 for the arrest of Stuart Pierce. An Interpol red notice was reportedly active at some point, although I can find no record of any current notice for Pierce on the Interpol website. In 2014, police released age-progressed photos of what Pierce may have looked like at that time if still alive. These haven't been updated since, which is obviously something South Australian police could look into again, but they may very well still be useful, so I'll put them on our social media. Take a look. If you think you even possibly know someone who could match the man in the photos contact Crime Stoppers or South Australian Police. At one point, I had considered whether it was possible that Pierce had later committed suicide and simply hadn't been identified, just sitting as unidentified remains. But he does in fact have some distinguishing tattoos. One of a naked woman with a rose on her back, located on his right upper arm, and another of a red and green rose over a Maltese cross on his lower left leg. I haven't been able to locate photos or examples of either tattoo, but we'll put those up on our social media if I can find them. Obviously, they may or may not have been removed, but there would most likely be visible evidence of any tattoo removal or other tattoos in the same location acting as cover-ups. So we're interested in the right upper arm and the lower left leg on any individuals who may be Pierce. At the time of his disappearance, Stuart Pierce was approximately 177 centimetres tall, with brown hair and blue eyes. He also required prescription glasses. If still alive, he is 63 years old. While Pierce could be anywhere, he has known connections to Mount Gambier in South Australia, the coastal town of Portland in Western Victoria, and family who reside in Western Australia. In a 2016 article with regard to the prospect of Pierce having received assistance from friends to elude police, one of Meredith's sisters implored of those individuals, quote, Just give up and tell your story. There's so much water under the bridge. If we can get some closure and find out what happened, you don't have to give yourself up. Just let us know if Stuart is alive or not so we can all get some closure. It would be nice to lay it all to rest. End quote. Records show that in 2002, lawyers for Matthew sought to have Stuart declared legally dead in order to allow the surviving son to access what had been described as a modest estate left by Meredith at her death. These funds had been held by the public trustee since the murders. I have however been unable to ascertain whether Pierce has indeed been declared legally dead. Police at the time, though, were quick to clarify that regardless of any declaration regarding the status of Pierce, 
that it would have no bearing on any future criminal action and that their file would remain open. If Pierce is still alive, there's people out there who know him, interact with him, maybe even like him. But both sides of this family deserve answers. What could possibly have been enough for someone to kill a mother and three of her young children? The why won't ease their pain, but it may allow them to finally unlock a new step in the process of their grief. And above all, Matthew deserves answers. A young boy excitedly went to a weekend sleepover, and by the time he opened his eyes the next morning, his whole life had been ripped out from under him. I can't imagine what it's like to inevitably question your own father, despite what conclusions you may ultimately draw, or what it's like to live with the survivor's guilt, wondering why you were spared. Was it because you were that loved, or just that lucky? When I see stories of children murdered, I often contemplate the additional lives that are erased, the familial lines that ended along with the lives of Adam, Travis, and Kerry, before they even began. A book of their lives turning to blank pages far sooner than they ever should have. Not even afforded resolutions, just paragraphs that end abruptly on January 5, 1991, in their own home, the one place they should have felt safe. And as someone who doesn't have any children of my own yet, I still can't comprehend what it must be like for a mother to anticipate, let alone be aware of the demise of her own children, perhaps with an earshot, and be unable to help them. Made worse if the man ending their lives was also the man she had chosen to be a part of beginning them. But where there's time, there's hope, and with the right person coming forward, answers can still be brought to light. Meredith, Adam, Travis, and Carrie J were laid to rest in Meredith's hometown of Mount Gambier. The inscription at the base of Meredith's plaque reads, Then I saw a new heaven and earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. If you believe you may have seen Stuart Pierce at any point since January 1991, or have any information regarding the murders of Meredith, Adam, Travis and Kerry, including alternate suspects, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. Or you can submit a tip online at crimestoppersa.com.au. The reward offered for information in this case is $1 million. So what do you guys think? Is Pierce our best suspect? If yes, do you think he's alive or dead? We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at reward underscore offered. Be sure to head to our socials for the age-progressed photos of Stuart and other case media. If you want to send us information on cases we have covered or suggest cases for us to cover in the future, you can email us at rewardofferedpod at gmail.com. That's it for this episode, kids. Thanks for listening.